I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 117 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. It's time for what has become our third annual early year check-in with the great, even legendary mastering engineer, Kevin Gray. Gray has been mastering albums for more than 50 years, and 2023 was his biggest, busiest year yet. His name is a big selling point for everything he masters, and his work has never been more in demand. Your jaw may drop when he reveals how many albums he mastered last year. These include entries in Blue Note's Tone Poet and Classic Vinyl series, Kraft Recording's Original Jazz Classic series and Jazz Dispensary label, Rhino Records' High Fidelity series, and re-releases from Jackpot Records and other labels. Gray has built his own equipment to work in an all-analog process using original master tapes when available. His pressings are an audiophile's dream. As if all that weren't enough, in 2023, Gray also launched a record label, Coherent Records, and released an album that he engineered in his own home studio in the San Fernando Valley, saxophonist Kirsten Edkins' Shapes and Sound. Of course, it sounds fantastic. When Gray and I spoke, he was preparing the imminent release of the second Coherent album, jazz guitarist Anthony Wilson's Hackensack West, also recorded in Gray's home studio. Do live engineering and mastering involve complementary skill sets? What did he learn from recording and releasing the Kirsten Edkins album? Does he use complete performances or edit takes together? Would he ever make the transition to become a full-time label owner? Why was 2023 his busiest year yet, and will he top that in 2024? How is mastering a rock album, such as the new Rhino High Fidelity version of Television's Marquee Moon, different from mastering a jazz album? Given that he is remastering The Grateful Dead's American Beauty for the third time, how can he improve upon what he has already done? Does he usually use an original album copy as a reference point for a new master? Gray also previews upcoming titles in Blue Note's Tone Poet and Rhino's High Fidelity series, among others, and details his work on them. I always learn a ton in my conversations with Kevin, and I know you will too. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Kevin Gray. Till the morning comes, it'll you How have you been? Are you, are you all done for the year? Yeah, as of yesterday. Uh, I, I actually went in yesterday to cut the masters on my new uh, release for Coherent Records with Anthony Wilson. So that's off off to RTI for for uh, plating. And uh, they said with some luck, I probably shouldn't even say this, but with some luck, they might actually have a test pressing for us. That's pretty cool. And uh, and so when's that coming out? As soon as we can get it out. Uh, I, I'm saying probably uh, third week or somewhere around that of, uh, of January. Um, we've got the artwork in finalization right now. And then uh, we need to get jackets printed because they won't press without printed jackets. So so this is the second Coherent Records release. The first one being Kirsten Edkins' Shapes and Sound. Exactly. Saxophonist, right. which sounds uh, fantastic performance-wise, recording-wise, mastering-wise. Thank you. Every-wise. <laughs> so what did you learn from that one that you brought to this one? <laughs> to try to get everything in production as quick as possible because, uh, you know, the jackets were what held us up on the last record. Now... Things have really improved greatly in terms of turnaround time from from that record. But when I originally contacted the f- the first fabricator, printer fabricator, they were telling me 38 weeks to do the jackets, which is you know, insane, you know. 
And then, uh, but this one, um, they said they could turn it around pretty quickly. So, so the jacket's designed; it's all ready to go. It's just a matter of not service. quite. We're we're just finalizing it, but yeah, we've got the front cover, we've got the inside. I think they're still working on the back cover. <laughs> it's going to be you, another, you know, gate gatefold. Right, and and you're having these pressed at RTI, which is as good as it gets. That's where the Tone Poet uh, releases are pressed as well. That's exactly right. And then you're recording them again in your your Hackensack West studio, which is basically your living room out there in the valley. Right, right. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the the, the funny part. Uh, Anthony decided to call the album without my permission, which I granted willingly. Hackensack West. That's the name. Oh, there of you the go. Album. So. So when he records the next one, there it'll be Hackensack West two. <laughs> that would be a little complicated, being that it'll be a different artist, probably. But yeah. Was it was there anything about the recording that you learned from doing uh, Kirsten's record where, you know, like because because you're because you're engineering, producing, mastering, releasing, doing all of the stuff on these records, um, you know, anything from the kind of producing engineering side that you've tweaked, you know, from one album to the next? Well, I had a little bit more practice after. I wouldn't say specifically I learned something between Kirsten's record and this other than um, a guy named Garth Powell came in. He's also another friend of Joe Harley's, who's an avant-garde uh, jazz drummer. And he came in and actually did three records in the studio. So I had quite a bit of engineering you know, in the studio since Kirsten's record before this record. So yeah, each little project that you do, you learn a little bit more. When you started out, how much, you know, of that in-studio engineering were you doing in the first place? Well, um, in in 1975, I worked uh, for three months at Kendon Recorders. They thought a mastering engineer was going to be leaving quickly, and he didn't leave for a while. And they threw me in the studio as a second engineer. Now, I already had some experience working with like garage band friends of mine, taking them into professional recording studios to do better demos. So I'd done a bit of that. And then I did some second engineering with, with that. But most of my engineering experience has been recording churches and schools and things like that back in the day. That goes all the way back to when I was in high school. And uh, one of the things that was just a real blessing in the midst of designing all this equipment was I was doing recording for the L.A. Jewish Symphony here in L.A. Uh, Noreen Green is their fabulous conductor, wonderful woman. And she uh, wanted recordings of, of all of their live performances. And so I did several. Um, they had another couple of engineers that were doing them for, for them. But um, I got to test out all of the microphones and the mixer um, on their stuff before I ever, you know, started doing this, the studio work with it. So that was really pretty cool. Does doing the studio work require a different set of skills from, you know, what you're doing when you're mastering, you know, thousands upon thousands of albums? Or is it still, are these pretty transferable skills? No, they're very, it's a very different um, mindset, I guess, doing live recording. Um, you're doing everything on the fly, whereas with mastering, you know, you can run the tape back and forth and, you know, check your EQ and get get everything exactly the way you want it. Whereas, especially in our case, where we're mixing live to two track, not recording multi-track and then mixing it down later, all the mixing is happening live to tape. So um, it's 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 a whole other. Um, uh, what's the word? Uh, discipline, I guess. 
Right. And, and, you know, and you're talking about how long ago you were doing, you know, live recording yet the, the techniques you're using predate even then. Right. I mean, you're not, oh, yeah. you're not, you're not going in on pro tools and doing this sort of digital yeah. thing. You're just recording live to two track, which is something that was being done in the fifties. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it goes all the way back to the first analog tape in 1948, I guess. Right, there you go. But, you know, with, with Blue Note, um, yeah, we're doing a lot of stuff from 55, 56, 57, you know, uh, it was all mono before 58. So, Is there anything that's different, I don't know, like mic placement wise, like the way you record or their techniques over the decades that have been picked up on where like, okay, you know, Rudy Van Gelder was doing it this way, but we've actually figured out a better way, at, at least in this little aspect. Well, that's an interesting question. That's a good question. I, I don't think it's been for the better. I think it's been for the worse. Um, in, in in trying to get more presence, I guess, for lack of a better word, they started putting more and more mics on everything. So it's not unusual, literally, to have eight microphones on a drum kit for, for recording. Right. Um, two or three mics on the piano. Uh, most other instruments, I think, are recorded with a single mic. But, but this whole idea of recording drums in stereo and recording... Uh, piano and stereo really just gives you a 10 foot wide pianos and 10 foot wide drums. And it doesn't give you the placement that you hear of instruments in a live room, which is what we're trying to do. So how many microphones you've set up when you're recording? Four microphones on this record. One, one on the guitar amp, one on the piano, one on the drums and one on the, on the bass. So no like room mic to get the ambiance of the, the room or anything like that? <laughs> well, with a small room, there's really no point to doing that. In a large studio, that's a nice way to get reverb. But yeah, it doesn't work in a small room. And are you adding effects like reverb or any of that? We are. Sort of yeah, we're, we're adding reverb. And are you doing that at the time you're recording or is that sort no, of the post-production? We're, we're doing it in the mastering. Got it. And um, are there typically like a lot of takes or are you really just kind of like doing recording this all pretty quickly no um on on this record we did three takes of one song two takes we, oh, we recorded nine songs six are on the album and we re recorded three takes of one song two takes of like three songs and then one take only of of the rest so it was pretty yeah, we, we, we did it in a hurry. I mean, not like we were rushing, but we, we recorded it over two days, and I think we had five songs down the first day, um, and then four the second. And the album is complete performances. You're not like taking the middle part of take two and the end part of take three or anything like that. Not on this record. In all honesty, we did a couple of edits on Kirsten's record. I won't tell you which songs, but we, we picked a different intro on one song and we picked a different solo, sax solo, on an, on another song and intercut those and nobody's ever picked up on it. <laughs> but anyway. Well, that's something that, you know, like as you know, since the first time I've talked to you, I've listened to a lot more jazz and, and I've just been trying to get more up to speed on a lot of this stuff. And and obviously there there are there are a lot of performances where it's just take whatever and it's like that was the fourth take from that day and then right. there's stuff like miles davis where you know they're cutting together all you know they're they're cutting together all sorts of different stuff and uh -huh. the editing is part of you know what that performance is and it's just kind of a different mindset yeah well rudy you know rudy made notes on his master tapes uh i'd say i'm just guessing maybe 10 percent of the stuff that he did was combined from two takes right 
Yeah, I was talking to Ed Stasium, who records a lot of, you know, and engineers and produces a lot of rock uh, records, and was talking about sort of going back and recording like this band, The Smithereens, or, you know, doing this remastering job on The Replacements, Tim, recently. But he was someone who I, I actually interviewed The Smithereens drummer as well, and he was complaining because he would say that, you know, Ed would make him play with a click track, and he didn't like the click tracks, and Ed was like i love clip click tracks because then you could like take all of the different takes and take this part yeah. from this one and this part from this one and this part from this one and it's you know and, yeah you have to do that if you plan to do that right and even that was like sort of you know like 1990 or something like that so we're already <laughs> talking like 33 years ago and i feel like now your modern production with digital and everything else and you know auto-tune and tweaking this and that and these you know supposedly imperceptible ways it really is so much more about assembling a performance instead of experiencing a performance uh i couldn't agree with that more yeah i i i just think that everything that's happened since about 1965 has caused the sound to degrade, not improve. And it's all done under the auspices of improving things. You right. know? But I, I think it was mostly just making it easier for the musicians and the engineers and that sort of thing. I don't think it made it better. Well, one interesting fact that you might get a kick out of is, is that our drummer on this record was, uh, maybe I should describe what, what it is. Absolutely. Please. Anthony, Anthony Wilson on jazz guitar and um, Jeff Hamilton on drums, and Gerald Clayton, who was also on Kirsten's record on piano, and his dad, John Clayton, on bass. And so it's an all-star band. I mean, these guys are known worldwide. They uh, Most of them perform with uh, with Dinah Krall, and then there's the uh, Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra, of which the two guys are the principals. Um, so, yeah. But, but Jeff is used to being in studios and having engineers, you know, put up eight mics on his drums and he'll, he'll say, take that one away and that one away and that way, that one away and that one away and leave basically two overheads and maybe a snare and kick. And so that's the way he likes to record. And, and he's kind of got that reputation. So I'll never forget when he was setting up his drums and we were just chatting, he said, so you're going to pick up my drums with one mic, huh? And I went, yeah. And he goes, um, I'll be interested to see how that sounds. Well, he came into the studio and listened to the playback and went, wow, this is great. And he's been telling everybody, yeah, this this guy in the valley recorded <laughs> my, my drums with one mic and it sounds amazing. So. <laughs> now, is there a specific kind of mic that, you know, if you're able to use that just captures a lot around it? Or is this just like an old fashioned mic that you could have gotten, you know, 50 years ago? Um, <laughs> yes and no. It, it, it's it's a clone of an old-fashioned mic. Um, I used a, a Neumann uh, M49C clone that I built for the uh, for the the drums, and uh, I used that also on on Kirsten's record with uh, Chris Wabich, and um, it just has an amazing way of picking everything up beautifully you know and at least in that room it does so so i come at a lot of this stuff from you know the rock side of it and then have been sure. you know broadening my horizons over the last several years and you know so to me when i would think of like albums that sound amazing i would think of something like dark side of the moon which as it turns out you did the definitive 30th anniversary version of Thank um you. at that time i was thinking of music that 
you know, really had a fair amount of sort of manipulation involved, even though it wasn't like the kind of digital manipulation, like push a button and make it sound a guitar sound like a sitar or something like that. Right. And, and you had said that the golden age of recording was more like, you know, mid late fifties through like, again, like 64, 65, something like that. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of like, Oh, but you know, those Beatles records sounded so amazing after that. But I was thinking in terms of like all these overdubs and everything. And I've since gone back and listened to a lot of that stuff that you were referring to a lot of which you've remastered for like blue note tone poet and just that sense of being in the room and hearing like the drums in a specific place in the room and the sax in another place and the bass popping out and the clarity of all of it it's like i get it now like i i didn't really get it then because i thought no right. you know the the apex is just that kind of head swirling stuff you put on the headphones and right. that's still great, but this is great in just this other sort of pure way. And so the idea of you sort of going back and recording this way now seems exciting because there aren't a lot of records now that sound that immediate and that like, wow, there's like this amazing combo. John Coltrane is playing in my living room. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, I should probably state that I have a completely different philosophy about rock and roll. I mean, all 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 bets were off once they started going to rock and roll um, because you, you couldn't record all of those guys live in a small room like you can with jazz. It, right. It, it just isn't practical. And um, I mean, sometimes they'll record like the basic track, you know, bass, drums, piano or bass, drums, guitar. Um, but the vocals need to be overdubbed and all of those things because trying to record that live with the band, you know, is not very practical. At some point, I, I want to attempt a rockabilly album. I've got a friend who's a great player, and I think that could be done in my studio live. But um, it, it doesn't lend itself to, I mean, most rock and roll doesn't lend itself to recording in a room. Right. Like yeah. No, I mean, if you were recording like Led Zeppelin in your living room, you'd, you'd have to do John Bonham on his own. Yeah, and right. Then, you know, And then go back and do that. It still might sound amazing, but you just couldn't do it live in the way you would do it with the jazz. Right. Um, I think sound started to really die even in the rock era after the 16 track era once they went to 24 track everything changed in a very negative way it was more than you could mix with two or even four hands so it required you know vca automation on boards it required dolby on every channel because of the buildup of hiss from 24 channels all this kind of stuff and uh you know it just every quote unquote improvement in there degraded the sound further. You know, if you listen to the stuff that was recorded 16 track or eight track, um, a lot of that stuff still sounds amazing to this day. You know, like Crosby, Stills and Nash and, right. and early Grateful Dead and, you know, so many things like that. Yeah, there's a lot of early 70s stuff that still sounds pretty fantastic, whether it's in that soul jazz or, or just, you know, again, rock that isn't quite, you know, mixed down to, you know, within an inch of its life. Yeah, 24 tracks started to come in around 1972, but it didn't really go out. I mean, 16 track didn't go out until maybe 75, you know, 76. Everything was pretty much 24 track. Yeah, Stevie Van Zant in his memoir, and I had him on Carol Pop a while ago, and he was complaining that music in the 70s sound-wise sucked, and then it got better in the 80s. Um, and I think that he's referring a lot to, I mean, he worked on a lot of records in the 70s, like with Southside Johnny, but of course, with Bruce Springsteen, um, you know, with the E Street Band, and just, you know, 
Bruce Springsteen albums that didn't credit the E Street Band. Um, and, you know, certainly something like Darkness on the Edge of Town is not considered a great sounding record. But his his complaint about the 70s was that that was when producers, because they could, were much more interested in isolating the the instruments instead of hearing them all together. Right. So instead of having instead of capturing a band performance, they were capturing the drums and then capturing the bass and then capturing the guitar. And he felt right. that there was this kind of lifeless thing going on. Whereas by the time Springsteen did The River in 1980, they were all playing together. And so that's what made it sound lively. Even though, you know, like my initial thought is, well, a lot of 70s recordings sound better than a lot of 80s recordings because there's such a timestamp in the electronics of the 80s. Yeah. But, but that's such maybe a different drum, issue. Drum machines and synths and uh, yeah. Right. But this, I think his issue was more that isolation of the musicians, basically. That you, you're, uh -huh. you're recording them all separately and assembling it, and it's not the same thing as hearing a band. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And in, in, in attempting to create perfection, they lost the feel, basically, is what happened. You know, when you start recording everything one track at a time, it sounds nothing like a group of musicians playing off of each other in a row. Nothing. It's it just, it's apples and oranges. There's so many mistakes on those Beatles records, and who cares? And they're great. You know? We love them, right? I mean... <laughs> and you've done, you know, rock mastering. Um, I have the the Thin Lizzy jailbreak you did for uh, Vinyl Me Please, um, uh -huh. which, you know, if you go on the message boards, people love that. And I don't think you did that from all analog sources. Cause I, cause I, I honestly put... don't remember. I, I remember mastering it, but I couldn't tell you what the source was. Yeah. sounds really good. Um, Thanks. I know you did that, uh, that, um, the Mad Lib, uh, Shades of Blue, which, mm -hmm. uh, you did that for Blue Note and then Vinyl Me Please came out with a version of it almost at exactly the same time. So, um, I'm wondering for for one for an album like Shades of Blue, it's 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 Blue Note, but it's a it's you know it's a hip hop guy basically remixing. Yeah, that was a digital recording for sure. So that's so it's like by nature digital, and yeah. and when you go into something like that, like are you using a different set of criteria to make it sound good? Are you trying to make it sound like a really great hip hop record or a really great jazz record, or is it just like what's the thought process there? I just try to make it sound good. You know, <laughs> I I don't I don't master different for different genres i really don't um it's just all a matter of, of getting the tonality where i think it's going to sound good on a basically on an audiophile system i don't i don't shoot for lowest common denominator like we had to back in the day right well because i was i would think that with something like hip-hop and i'm speaking in a total generalization that there might be a sense of oh with hip-hop the bass has to really boom because that's just the way hip-hop records are are mixed and so whether oh, yeah. so so whether there's a thought when you're mixing something from hip-hop even though it's based on jazz like whether you think well you know there's an expectation that the bass is going to sound louder than i would normally mix the bass um i understand what you're asking um i, I try to keep things the way it's expected for the genre so i'm not going to start taking off bass on a, on a rap record because i'm you know my assumption is that's the way they want it right yeah and th and that's just such a weird thing because it's like this hybrid of these you know it's it's is it a rap yeah. record is it a jazz record i mean if you go on the blue knot site there it is you know next to it's Hank an Mobley interesting record so yeah i um and it's got stepping into tomorrow on it which is donald bird which is already you know him sort of stretching jazz into this other thing that he was doing in the mid 70s and i think you worked on the 
original of that. Maybe not that one. Maybe Places and Spaces was the was the oh, one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time, um, yeah, I worked on two or three Donald Birds right back in that era. But you know, I just did one recently. You know, I don't know if I should be talking about it, but I think it would be out by now. The the live at Montro thing that he recorded. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. Yeah, That's fantastic. That was so fun to work on because it was like visiting old friends again. You know, um, the. The band on that was, you know, Larry and Fonce Mizell, who I did a lot of work they were with. They were Sky High Productions and the producers for the, the other Donald Birds that we were just talking about and Bobby Humphrey and a whole bunch of other, you know, acts. And that uh, was a that was a really fun project. Does mastering a live recording differ from doing something recorded in the studio just in terms of? I don't know how you approach it or how you're going to... Not really. Usually they're a little easier to master because everything's been pretty much done in the mix, you know, to get it to flow from track to track and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, occasionally I'll have to tweak something that's out of bounds. But but usually I, I find live albums a little easier, uh, at least from a rundown standpoint. You know, getting it on the disc might be a different story, but... You know, as far as spacing, time, you know, all that good stuff. Yeah, I saw the Tone Poet release their schedule of, uh, you know, albums for 2024. And there are a few Donald Birds on there, including Kofi, which is from 6970, which is right before that Larry Mizell period. But yeah. it still was kind of when he was making that transition into sort of a full Oh, yeah. I, I think Rudy was recording multi-track by that time. Um, so it, it's a little different sound than what people are used to. But... Uh, it's a good record. I I have the one that you did of Ethiopian Nights, which was in the Blue Note eighty series. Uh -huh. So, is there like a different approach when you do like because those are from the same era of Donald Bird, basically? Is right. there a different approach when you're going to do that one for, uh, you know, the Blue Note eighty series? But now these are tone poets, so they have a different, you know, way that you do them because it's a higher end release. Not really. Uh, the main difference between the tone poet and classics, which was a continuation of 80s, you know, right. um, is, is that, you know, Joe Harley and I collaborate on the tone poets and I'm on my own on the classic stuff. Although I get some input from from Jim Kurzman, who's, uh, you know, heads up the, the classic series. And right. The, right. Yeah. And yeah. And Joe Harley uh, is sort of listed as like producing these. And obviously you guys work together. So what does that what does that mean practically in terms of when you like, are you, is he in the room while you're mastering it then? Oh, absolutely. Do... Yeah. Yeah. He comes in for the sessions. We, we do it two days a month. Um, he stays in a hotel cause he lives quite a way South of here. So, um, so he books a hotel for the night and, and works Wednesday and Thursday nights usually, or I mean, Wednesday and Thursday day. Um, and then, uh, the, the lacquers get shipped overnight first overnight to RTI for plating. Right, which is relatively nearby, as opposed to yeah, it's uh, sixty miles up the coast. But they, you know, they go FedEx and and their first overnight. Right, and then the classic ones go to Optimal. Yes, correct. And where is that? Yeah. I should know that. Germany. That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah, so a very good plant. My favorite plant in Europe. Um, the people there are very nice, and um, yeah, I have a good a good rapport with uh, with Optimal. I mean, I've certainly heard you know just the, it's just an advantage if you're. If you can have the pressing plant close to where you're making the lacquer, it's just better for the record to not like have to go all the way overseas and the time involved and everything else. Yeah, the lacquer, it, it's crazy, but I mean, the lacquer begins to deteriorate, quote unquote, uh, you know, immediately after cutting, because basically 
lacquer is on the soft side. It's slightly elastic, and it kind of wants to go back to its original uncut shape. So mm. it, it I, I'm talking about very, very minor, but it, it, it sort of does that. And so the sooner you can get it plated, um, the better. When you're doing its tone poet cut with Joe Harley, what is the kind of input that he's having in it that makes it come out specifically like a tone poet release? Well, he's usually listened to the original several times before we come in. He brings it with him. Um, and so he's familiar with the recording. And, you know, I'm hearing it cold for the first, well, not necessarily the first time, but for the first time in a while, a long time, and the first time off the tape sometimes. Um, you know, a few of these I've done a couple of times. But um, he has... He and I hear things pretty much the same, but we'll play off of each other. You know, what do you think about a DB of bass or what do you think about a DB of top band? You know, and you know, can we try this? You know, that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, we always agree in the end. But, um, you know, he's, he's got the suggestions and uh, and they're good ones. So I, I, I enjoy working with Joe immensely. By the way, I should mention he produced the, the new record for Coherent Records with uh, with. Uh, uh anthony wilson anthony wilson thank you yeah that sounds that's that's great yeah it sounds like you two i mean you must have like a you both have really great pairs of ears and they're complementary to each other you know it's not yeah and he also he said that his system at home sounds very much like my system in the mastering room and he said my my mastering room is the only place where he's ever had that experience most rooms he has to try to figure out what's going on in there and then when he gets at home it sounds different all over again you know he said i never ever have a shock when i get something home after working with you in your studio it, it usually sounds the same on my system as i expect it to sound having worked in, in your studio with you so when you're working on something like let's let's go back to Donald Bird's Kofi, are you gonna try to dig out or say, hey, you know, send me whatever the most recent Blue Note release of this has been, just so I could listen to it and get to know the music as a reference point? Or is it better for you just to kind of come in cold and be like, yeah, I heard this at some point, but you know, I don't have set expectations on what it's supposed to sound like. I'm just it gonna. It depends. You know. I mean, a lot of times. It's kind of obvious when you put the tape or the source, whatever it is, up and start listening, you kind of know where to go with it. But sometimes it's nice to have a point of reference. And I always like to have that point of reference available if I feel I need it. More so with pop stuff than jazz stuff. Right. You know, so you'll you had a real struggle when I cut um, uh, for Rhino, when I cut the um, the Billy Cobham album was very bright very bright and my inclination was to tone it down quite a bit and i kind of split the difference i did not have an original to compare it to so i didn't know what had been done in cutting that that was engineered by one of my favorite engineers of all time ken scott and i was a little surprised when it was as bright as it was you know it's mostly billy's symbols that are bright but um so i toned it down ever so slightly. I didn't want to get carried away. And it's gotten really great reviews. So I'm happy. <laughs> there you go. Well, so we right. So you you work on a lot of series. So one of the series is the Rhino High Fidelity series. Yes. Uh, the first two of those that came out were the Cars self-titled debut album and Coltrane Sound. And mm -hmm. the Cars one just sold out immediately. Yeah. So so that one, are you going back to, again, original vinyl of the Cars, what is that, a 70, 1978 album? I had it, um, so I didn't have to you know, get one from them. 
Um, but uh, I listened to it very briefly. I mean, the tape sounded wonderful. I didn't really have to do a whole lot to that in cutting. I guess the one thing that I did that a lot of people haven't done in the past is I didn't roll off any bass. And I think that the bass got rolled off on some of the originals because they were worried about skipping on cheap players. Right. And I didn't feel like I had that constraint. So, um, yeah. Was it, was Elliot Easton involved in the mastering of that? Or would, did he just sort of sign off on it after you'd done all the work? Uh, he signed off on it after, but he did come to the launch party that we did at a at a hi-fi show, uh, a hi-fi uh, dealer down in L.A. And that was fun to do that with him. Right. I had met him before. He's the Cars guitarist. I should just introduce that as yeah. I mentioned him. And I saw him play at that uh, Nuggets show in, was that in May? Yeah, in May, which is when I saw you last. And uh, and and I was asking him about it, and he was also saying how just fantastic it sounded. Um, yeah, yeah. He was he was very, um, he was kind of blown away when he heard it played back. Of course, they were playing it on a really good system, too, so that helped. Yeah, and that's one where you have you have Roy Thomas Baker producing it. I would imagine that helps because he has, he's an he's amazing a, producer. Another one of, I think, probably in my top two or three producers of the seventies. You know, you listen to the stuff by Queen. I mean, just so many great records that he did. Yeah, and really crisp sounding too. Yes, you know, you just really can hear like just the crackle of every instrument, you know, distinctly, yep. but playing together. Like how far in advance do you work? The two a month that have been announced for 2024 for Tone Poet, have you done all those already? Oh, we are, well, yeah, we're like in the last days of 20, oh, 2024. Yeah, actually we're, we're way into 2025 right now. We're way out on, on that series, farther out than anything. Uh, and I'm probably six months out at least, maybe more on the classic series. So there are a lot of series you're doing. You're doing the two different series. You're doing the classics and the tone poet for Blue Blue Note. You got the Rhino High Fidelity. You've been doing these ones for Jackpot Records. You've been doing mm -hmm. the the Kraft um, original jazz classics. Yep. Um, what 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 am I missing here? You've done a bunch of Sundays ones. I don't know if you still Tons are. Tons of stuff for Sundays. If yeah. you goes on go if you go on the Sundays website, there's a there's actually a a button on the side that says Kevin Gray cuts and, oh, wow. and there, and there are 15 pages of albums that you've cut for them. So that's amazing. So yeah, that's that your brand name for that's Sunday. very nice. Wow. I, I, did, I didn't know they were doing that. That's great. Yeah. I recently got your, uh, the slime, the family stone fresh. That sounds mm -hmm. really good. Um, I, I told you, I, I think I sent you an email in the middle of the year going, I keep buying records that you're that, that you you mastered. So, you know, some new, <laughs> some old. But anyway, so to go back to what I was gonna ask you about all this, um, you have all these different series. Is there a different sort of way you approach each thing depending on the series? I mean, obviously Tone Poet is different because it's the two of you, you know, doing these together. But other than that, like Rhino High Fidelity versus like you know, the, the, the classic vinyl for blue note or, you know, the original jazz classic, is it basically, I mean, aside from the, the music or whatever, is it you taking the same amount of time doing the same kind of work on each one of these? Yeah, I typically can do two titles a day from tape that I have to run down. Well, I can do that two a day with jazz. It might be one a day on a pop record because, you know, on some tapes, it requires a lot of changes from track to track to track. Um, the Cars was not an example of that, but but there have been some I probably shouldn't mention. But yeah. 
Well, well, when you say from track to track, is that just because you know one song's kind of an acoustic ballad, and then one of them is like a lot no, rocker, it, or is it the, the the actual the quality of the recording is really irregular? It, it's not a quality issue. It's that you know you got to remember that in the, well, maybe most people don't know this, but in the mid seventies, it wasn't unusual to record and mix an album in three different studios, right? Maybe not even all in the U.S. I mean, like I can think of Carly Simon, No Secrets. Half of that was was recorded in England. Half was recorded here. Half of it was was mixed there. Half of it was mixed here, and um, and that's kind of all over the place. There's a lot of EQ changes on that album. So just just to, just to balance things up and make it flow right, you know. Right. So the original release that would have come out you know, in the seventies would have had the EQs all over the place. And then the version you would work on, it would be like, Hey, guess what? We're going to try to make this sound like a consistent. Oh no, no, no. That, well, that album in particular was mastered by Doug Sachs, who's one of my favorite mastering engineers. And he did all of the balancing up on that from track to track. I, I was kind of following what he did, you know, on that album. I don't know if that was ever cut for vinyl. I think we only did that for an SACD, but I think that was for audio fidelity. But anyway, but in so, but in general, you'll do two a day, and you know, and it doesn't matter whether it's Jackpot or Rhino or Blue Note, not Tone Poet, right? Well, we do two a day for the Tone Poets too, because Joe. Was, do, that was my next question. Yeah, he'll, he'll do he'll do two titles on on Wednesday and two titles on on Thursday. So it's really just two a day, um, and then well, unless I'm cutting, if I'm cutting from pre-mastered digital files, I can knock out a whole bunch more than that because <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot simpler. So does the label give you the source material or do you have Always. to say, hey, I want to, you know, like, look, do you have anything a little better than this? Well, I have done that occasionally, but but mostly um, they send me the sources and that's what I cut. They, they go through and pick out the best sources. We have a real good point guy at at Blue Note, who's now at Iron Mountain, because that's where all the Blue Note tapes are. His name is Jack Arenas. And and he'll sift through if there's two or three copies of something. Um, this wouldn't be so much for the Blue Note as for other Universal titles. But if there's two or three copies of something, you know, he'll try to figure out from all of the notes and everything, which is the earliest and the best and all that good stuff. And if he's not sure, he'll send me all of them, you know, and let me sift through and, and find out. And are you involved at all in the the licensing, or is that pretty much just the no? That's just the label. Because sometimes, and, and I'm wondering whether I mean maybe it's just like you're just doing the job, and you might step back and go, oh, you know what? I just did this Ornette Coleman, um, and now you know there's a Mobile Fidelity one step one step of the same the same record. Uh, you know, I didn't realize that was going to come out at the same time, or you know, like the Shades of Blue, the Mad Lib. Again, it had the blue note and the vinyl me please like right around the same time. Hmm. I mean, does that affect you at all? Do you do you compare and go, oh, it's interesting to hear how someone else did the exact same thing? And, and does no, it get I'm miffed? Far like, more, I'm far more interested in getting an original copy of when it was originally done because you can almost bet that the producer was there and was you know you were getting his input to how he thought it should sound. Whereas if it's somebody else doing it. Like I'm doing it, they're just guessing, you know, like I'm just guessing, so to speak. well, not guessing, but, you know, I'm just giving it the treatment I think it needs. And somebody else would have done that on their reissues. So it doesn't really mean a whole lot to me. I, I very seldom listen to other reissues when I'm doing a reissue. Right. And you won't listen like after the fact, like, like, like John Prine, you, you did these John Prine ones. Um, and then... Vinyl Me Please came out with Ryan 
K. Smith doing like this first John Prine record. Um, you won't go like, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder what what Ryan had to do with this one. Like, what, do we sound the same? Oh, we sound similar <laughs> here. Oh, uh, no, I don't know. I, you know, I I think Ryan's a fine mastering engineer, and I'm sure he did a great job with it too. So, but no, I haven't listened to his. When I talked to you before we set this up, you said that this had been your best year yet. So, a, what does that mean, and why do you think that is? Well, um, some of the the new series that I've started for mastering, like like Rhino and and classics. Actually, I started the end of last year. I mean, uh, uh, uh. uh the OJC series. I started that the end of last year, but but what's really made it huge for me really was Coherent Records, Kirsten's record. You know, we got out um, in the middle of January, and um, it just exceeded all expectations. It's it's been amazing, and uh, then we made it available for digital download in October. And we got like 1,500 downloads the first week, which shocked the heck out of me, you know. And and then, you know, we recorded Anthony's record in June, and it's taken this long to get it out. It's it's tough when you're dealing with a touring musician because we had to send them digital files of the analog recordings and let them listen. It was mostly Anthony, uh, but the whole band, you know, heard them because they were all touring together. To the day or two days after we recorded, they took off on on three of the four took off to to tour with Diana Krall up in Canada, so they were playing them on the bus and it was kind of fun to hear all the feedback. But you know, it took this long to 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 figure out which songs are going to go on the album, which takes are the best takes on the ones that were multiple takes, um, and then what sequence do you want them in? And I let Joe and and. Anthony do that together. I stayed out of the process because I know they were both very good at it. I've worked with both of them on other albums. And but now now we're going through all the photos, you know, and everything in the layout. So it's been um it's been tough working with a traveling musician, you know, who does as much stuff as, as Anthony does. Well, and you're running a label on top of running this other very successful, very busy business. That's true. That's true. I, I have an assistant who's working with me part time. His name is Matt Luthens, who also works part time with Chad. And so he's like commuting between Seattle and L.A. and Seattle and Salina and Salina to L.A. and L.A. to Salina. It's I don't know how he does it, to be honest, but whenever I can get him in to help me, he's doing a great job. Is he's, that Chad at Acoustic Sounds? Yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Salina. Yeah. Sorry. But anyway, so so Matt does a lot of stuff for me um he's done a few of the not a, more than a few of the the uh, uh ojc titles um and uh if you see his name in the dead wax he's he's he did everything and um uh, and i've been very pleased i mean you know i sat in with him on a couple of them and listened to what he came up with and went hey great go <laughs> you know and uh could you see ever making the transition to just being a, a label owner who produces records and you know this mastering stuff i've done it for long long enough i'm going to do this other thing now well it could happen really uh, not saying any more than that <laughs> wow okay how many how many albums did you master in 2024 I haven't actually totaled them up yet i i did just short of 400 i think it was 385 in 2023 I was talking with Matt about this the other day, and he goes, we've got to have done 450 titles this year. And I said, I don't think it's quite that high, but it's probably at least 425. So, is, so this is the most you've ever done. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. And, you know, technically, I only work four days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, because if I cut on Friday, you would have to sit over the weekend, which I'm trying not to do to get into the plants. But I have started going in on Sunday nights and cutting when I get really bogged down. And I'm, I'm not doing like the, the super audiophile stuff on those days. I'm doing the kind of the lesser stuff. But but yeah, it's it's like it, I've had to just to be able to get the stuff out because I mean you figure it out four days a week times fifty weeks, uh, you know that's two hundred and I would have to cut. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I would have to cut four sides a day every day, you know, and that doesn't always work out because like I say when I'm when I'm doing stuff from analog, you know, pop stuff for instance, you know, like like any of the any of the. Um, Rhino titles. I mean, I'm going to spend a day on those. So, so you, so you had the most you've ever mastered in the same year that you also released an album and you know got it out there and were successful with it. Like you would think that the the year you released an album, maybe you would have cut back on the other thing. And it seems like everything got amped up. Yeah. Well, if I want to keep my clients, it's not like I have a whole lot of control over that. You know, got to keep everybody happy. But um, I'll tell you what was really nuts was back in March, um, I got the flu and was recovering from that. And then I got the neurovirus stomach virus. And I'm trying to cut records and ship records, you know, for my stuff at the same time. And it was wearing me out. I mean, it was just it was it was (laughs) <laughs> not fun. That was a horrible month. Yeah. But other than that, it was great. And then when Mike Esposito stepped in and now is doing the distribution to my distributors, in addition to his sales, um, that worked out really well because RTI just ships to him and I don't have to worry about it. Is is your busyness a sign? Uh, his of... company's the in-group, by the way. I okay. Is, is, is how busy you are... Uh a good sign of the health of the music industry right now? Like the fact that I certainly think so. The the health of the vinyl industry. I don't, I don't know about the rest of the rec quote unquote music industry, you know, but the vinyl thing, uh, I don't see any signs of it stopping. We've got new plants coming online any day now, you know, vinyl me please as a plant right in Denver Denver. and, uh, and uh, MoFi has their plant in uh, Oxnard, right above Camarillo. Rick Hashimoto left RTI. He's doing that. And so um, they're both going to be fully operational this coming year. So that's great. Yeah, I, I've, you know, like a year ago or more, I, I kept hearing all these stories about how backed up the printing plants were and how long it takes to get an album pressed. And it seems like that's gotten a little better. It has a lot. Mostly because they've added new plants, they've put on extra shifts, they've added employees. Um, yeah, it's 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 required everybody to make a lot of change to make it all work and keep keep stuff flowing. Did you did you ever expect you know? I mean, given how long you've, you've been doing this for fifty, more than fifty years now, did you ever think that like, oh yeah, in the two thousand twenties, everything's going to really pick up on on the vinyl oh, yeah. part of it? Right. No, I I you know. It would have taken a crystal ball to predict this. I I never, you know, when when two three years after the CD came out, and you know what was it like nineteen ninety when everybody stopped producing vinyl altogether, I never thought it was going to come back again. As much as I loved it, I, I thought it's dead and gone, and that's that. So, you know, I think it was in nineteen ninety two that I started doing uh, stuff for DCC on vinyl again, and that really for me was. You know, 
the beginning of the upswing. Yeah, I had a, I won't say debate, but discussion with a friend of mine on Facebook who's been, you know, music writer for a long time. And he kind of put a cranky thing up about, you know, records being $25 and, you know, it's just like a bunch of hobbyists, you know, collecting things and da da da. And I, and I was like, and so I pulled out a, um, I should look it up, but it was, it was a New York Times story from like 1995, I think, mm -hmm. talking about the, you know, how the average CD price was $17. And I said, you know what? If 28 years ago you were paying $17 for this inferior product and now you're paying 25 for something that sounds much better, like that, like in, in all the inflation, I, that doesn't seem like that's when that one's that bad. And he was I don't like, think oh, so. I don't no. think so at all. Would you consider ramping up to, you know, more than one release a year? Is, and are you looking to do that or is it just oh, yeah. kind of like, yeah. you know, just see how it goes? And down the road, we'd like to be putting out three or four a year. So we'll see. Do you and and the acts that you're recording are these people who have come to you and say, "Hey, I'd really like to record with you." Or are you going? You sound like you would sound fantastic in my living room in Hackensack West. Well, we picked we picked Kirsten based on a sound test that we had done. We hired her to come in and play, put a band together, and come in and play to test the studio and the gear and just see how everything worked in the room, you know. And she came up with the four songs, one standard and three that she wrote. And we recorded those, and I was so blown away with her playing and the songs and everything else that we just said, hey, you want to do the record? And she's like, well, I was kind of hoping. And I said, well, yeah, so let's do it. So that's how that all came about. Anthony was, that's a fun story. He came, he came, he, he comes in with Joe occasionally when we do tow boats because they're good friends. And, you know, Joe did one of his early records, which is just a classic called The Power of Nine, which was recorded back in 1999 with his Nonette. And uh, Joe produced that. And so uh, he'll, he'll come in and sit in on a Kenny Burrell or, or a Grant Green or, you know, some of the guitar guys or other people, too. But anyway, um, so I took him in the studio to, to show him and he walks into the room and he looks around and he's kind of going, I could record in here. And I kind of think, I thought, wow, that's that's cool, you know, but I didn't push the issue. Well, apparently he and Joe talked about it for a while. And the next time he came back in, he said, hey, Kevin, I think I want to do an album in here. And I said, for you? And he goes, no, for you. And I'm like, cool. <laughs> so, yeah. And then when I heard, you know, the band that he was putting together, I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> so so do, you, do you know who's next to come in to record? We're talking to two or three different people. Nothing's set in concrete yet. Um, Jeff ha Hamilton has expressed some interest in doing a trio album, which we'd be happy to do. Um, but yeah, we're talking to a few other people. And in terms kind of a, it kind of getting one out at a time, you know, when I'm trying to do all these other things, I, I can't spread myself too thin. I think next next year, my wife's going to be helping me a lot because she's retiring from teaching nice. Is there anything about the, you know, experience of actually putting out your own records that has surprised you even? I mean, you obviously know a lot about the industry already, but there was there anything about it that sort of thought, oh, didn't expect that aspect of it? Well, the sales were just amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that it would sell pretty well over time. I was really shocked at how fast it sold. And um, and the other thing that's kind of funny is we did zero advertising. The only, quote, advertising I had for the record was the video that Ben Williams put together for me, the 17-minute video about right. the whole 
building the equipment and doing the first record. And, you know, that, that thing's up to like 77,000 views, I think, which just shocks me also. So, um, yeah, it's, it's. Yeah. I was going to ask you about the sort of the marketing of it, because it seems like people know you through your work uh, as a mastering engineer and, you know, they they associate a certain, you know, quality of sound with you. So that's pretty great. Um, but I was wondering, like, you know, did you have to hire a publicist to send out press releases? Did you like send Nothing. review copies to like every jazz critic in the country, wherever they are working now? Or? No, I, I got a few people calling me and saying, could you send me a copy for review? And I did. And, uh, you know, Michael Fremer did one of our first, uh, ballyhoos and he did a really nice job for us about the studio and, you know, coming out with the first record, we gave him a couple of sound clips and we've just done that recently with the jazz bums on Anthony's record. So, uh, but that video was, I think really what got people interested and they wanted to hear it. And yeah. <laughs> But when they're contacting the label, it's you, right? I mean, there's not like yeah. this, you know, bank of people answering the phones and the mailroom's going to send out the copy or anything like that. It's all me. Are you Are you actually, like, when someone orders one from, you know, your website, are you the one who's, like, putting it in the mail? And I don't have them on my website. I have gotten emails from people saying, you know, can I buy one direct from you and would you autograph it? That's usually the reason for wanting to buy it direct from me. And so I do. And, uh, you know, I sell it to them for the same prices. They'd be buying it from Acoustic Sounds. So but otherwise, Acoustic Sounds is really where you get them. Uh, well, th it's the big three plus in-group. So it's 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 Elusive Disc, absolute, uh, uh, Analog Productions, or Absolute... No, what's this company? Uh, acoustic Sounds. Acoustic right. Sounds, Elusive Disc, and... Uh, music Express... Uh, music uh, Direct. Direct, right. <laughs> and, and then the in-group. Those four are where you can buy it. Right. So you're not Plus, actually putting stuff in mailers and going to the post office, at least. Just a few that, you know, people have asked for. Yeah. Right. No, because you just do so much. And I was like, that, that would be a bit much if you had to do that part of it as well. Yes, it would. So what's your forecast for 2024? What's that going to look like for you? Well, we'd like to put out one or two records for um, Coherent. We'll see how that all goes. Uh, it, it's it's only in the talking stage at this point. Once you get the talking stage finalized, then you got to find the time to get working musicians to come in and do it. And, you know, we started talking in probably February for doing Anthony's record. And then we didn't record it until the middle of June because the guys he wanted to work with were all touring. So we had to find a time where we could get the four guys in the studio at the same time. So that's, you know, another thing. So ho hopefully in January or February, we'll get things finalized with who we're going to do the next album with and then try to get that on the on a docket to record it. And then on the mastering side, do you, does it look like it's going to be even busier this year? You know, you're going to hit 460 or 470? <laughs> I don't know how I could do it. You know, I've been turning away business. Actually, I've been turning away business since like 2018, but I've I've turned away more business this year because I just, I can only do so much, you know, even, even with part-time health. Are there albums that you have gotten to do where you thought, oh, that was, I'm really glad I got to do you know, like the meters or, or, you know, like some of these jackpot ones or anyone uh -huh. else. And is there, and is there anyone that you've been especially excited that you got to do recently? And is there anyone who you're thinking, you know, this is still my white whale of something I want to re <laughs> remaster at some point. 
Well, in particular for Jackpot, it, it was the Booker T stuff. I, I'm a huge Booker T and the MGs fan. So that was fun. Um, yeah, some of the classic titles that I've done, some of the tone poets have been, been very, very special. You know, I mentioned that Donald Byrd one, which was real close to my heart. Oh, and then, well, I guess it goes back a ways, but Spaces and Places, you know. I mean, I had mastered that record originally in 1976 or whenever it was. So to get to revisit that was really pretty special. I really enjoyed that. Which one sounds better? <laughs> well, I, I think my system that I have now is better than the system I had at that time. So the new one. And and again, is is there a white whale? Is there like the the album, you know... Like, my work will be done when I get to master this record. Yeah. Well, I always say the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, but I don't think that's going to happen, realistically speaking. I mean, I don't think the Beatles tapes are ever going to leave Abbey Road. And I don't know about the Stones. You never know what's going on with them. But, you know, you feel like these 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 Giles Martin um, remixes now are going to become like the versions of the Beatles albums going forward, which are not the original. Beatles. Yeah, I'm, I'm against that. I'm sorry. I just I, don't I, I like apologize what, to me, but well, I love I love what Giles did with love, you know, for the Cirque du Soleil show. I, I thought that was spectacular, but I don't see the point to remixing. It's like rewriting history. You know, I, I just I thought the stuff that his dad did was just perfect. <laughs> well, it's interesting because they put out the red and blue albums. And so you get all the these new versions of these early singles where the stereo really was, you know, drums on the left side and the vocals on the right and that sort of thing. And so, well, you know, the story that was never intended to be released in stereo. Right. The, the two, you know, it was literally recorded on two tracks independently and they were supposed to be mixed together for mono. And when, when, and that's the way they were released in the UK always. And then when, uh, they sent the tapes over to the United States with the instructions, combine these to mono in this proportion. They didn't do it. Right. Yeah. Oh, if we just put it out this way, it's stereo. So they've sort of digitally, you know, isolated all the instruments and they remixed them as if it were like a modern mm -hmm. 1964 record. So the drums are in the center and you have like more space around the sides on All My Loving or whatever. But it is revisionist because that's not what they sounded like. So, you know. You want to you want to go go back and get the original tapes and just do that. Well, you know, I bought I bought the. Uh, it's funny because I just was given a bunch of info to a guy who emailed me. I I bought the uh, the blue box in in eighty two. You know, the Parlophones, and that's my go to. I have that too. Yeah, and somebody said, "Well, have you compared Sergeant Pepper on that to this version and that version?" And it's like, no. And frankly, I don't care. I mean, it just sounds great. It sounds so much better than the American versions. It sounds so much better than... Well, the, the first time I thought I was hearing what the Beatles really sounded like, since I didn't originally have the British pressings, was when the red and the blue records came out. You know, the 62 to 66, 67 to 70. Um, those, the versions on that sounded so much better than the ones that Capitol had released. Um, you know, I was really impressed. Lee Helco did a great job with that. Um, but then when the blue box came out with the original Parlophones, I was like, wow, I think this is what the Beatles are supposed to sound like. Carol Pop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. Maybe you're observing dry January. Maybe you're hitting your limit. Or maybe you're a hop fan looking for some morning or midday refreshment. Either way, you're in luck. 
because Revolution has created an excellent non-alcoholic beer alternative. Super Zero is a sparkling hop water that delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling anti-hero IPA. It's available in six packs at stores and on revbrew.com. So Rhino has announced its uh, high fidelity titles for the next several months. Yes. And there's some really good ones, um, including uh, Marquee Moon by Television, which is one of my favorite albums, Ornette Coleman's Change of the Century. And then in March, you got The Cars Candio. You did what I think is the definitive version of The Cars debut album. So this is the second album with Let's Go and a bunch of other hits on it. Right. And then the Grateful Dead's American Beauty. Yes. Um, and then then in April, you have John Coltrane's Olay Coltrane and Miles Davis's Tutu. So right. any just thoughts about that lineup? I mean, you've probably done like a whole year's worth and that's just what they've announced. But those are those have all been done. <laughs> didn't are- didn't. I could have sworn, and you, you'll tell me, but I think I have a version that you did of Marquee Moon, the television album. No, it wasn't me. Um, I had never heard that record before and was very impressed with it. I like. Oh, it's it. great. Yeah, I'd never heard it. So, so it. well, so tell me about that. Like, here's an album you've never heard. You know, do you have to listen to it a bunch just to get to to know it a little bit before you you know go in and start you know. No, nah, well, again, you know, most of the stuff, since it is in their Hi-Fi series, I guess, High Fidelity series, uh, the tapes sound pretty damn good. I mean, I, I have had to do very little to, to most of the titles for this series so far, including the old Atlantic stuff, you know, like uh, uh, Coltrane. But um, this one um, sounded really good, and I don't remember having to do a lot to it at all. And, no, uh, yeah, I just treated it like most of the other titles that I do. You know, it probably took me... Five hours to cut it, maybe. So, I mean, when there's an album of that you've cut and people are like, oh, my God, this is like the greatest. I've never heard this album sound like this. And, you know, it's like a jazz record or sometimes it's a rock record. A lot of the times it's a jazz record. It, when you Is that a case of you just not doing that much, but, you know, putting it through just the right equipment as opposed to you doing some sort of magical, you know, manipulation. So it just sounds more, you know, spatially present in the room than other versions have. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would say my equipment has got a lot to do with the sound. It really does. I, I, I think it's very transparent compared to a lot of mastering systems. It's, it's very extended at both ends of the spectrum, more than most mastering systems. Um, so I think that has something to do with it. Uh, Maybe even a lot to do with it. I don't know quite how to quantify a percentage, but um, I don't know. Sometimes I do have to do a lot of of EQ to things, but most of those hi-fi titles, that is not a high-fidelity title. I can always get that wrong. Uh, that has not been the case. They've been pretty uh, pretty straight ahead. They call it hi-fi too, so I think you're oh, okay. They? Oh, yeah, they right. do. I've, I've gotten emails where it says, Rhino High Fidelity, parentheses, Rhino Hi-Fi. So, well, I've actually got a very early press release from them that I don't know if it went public, but it said Rhino Hi-Fi. And so I started calling it that, and then I find out, oh, no, it's Rhino High Fidelity. So, you know, it's one of those things. Well, I have an email that says, Rhino's Hi-Fi series returns in 2024 with best titles to date. So if they're there saying that in their press material, you, you who are the one who's actually working the math Mastering magic, you could say whatever you want, but you're not being inaccurate. You're not being inaccurate calling it the Hi-Fi series. Okay, well, that would probably have to get run by Patrick Milligan, but okay. <laughs> there you go. 
I give you permission. He, we'll see what he's Jackson my go to. He's he's the guy that I deal with on most of this stuff, and um, and he's really a joy to to, to work with. And uh, uh, I used to do a lot of work, and still will still do on the non high fidelity series with Steve Woolard. He's always been my favorite contact over there. You know the Yes stuff, the Faces box set, the you know everything going back to the Bee Gees. You know that was pretty much all the Bee Gees box. Right, that was pretty much all. Um, uh, Steve Woolard, but uh, so I've been dealing with Patrick only recently since the High Fidelity series started, um, and that's been great. So American Beauty, you've done that's done. That is my all-time favorite Grateful Dead album. That was a blast to work on. I have actually mastered it twice before, um, so yeah. But there are, um, there are a lot of versions of American Beauty out there. I, I know, know there Mofi has one. Uh, VMP Vinyl Me Please has a Grateful Dead anthology that it's on, right? Um, and if you've done it twice previously, I mean that's so. So doing it this time for Rhino High Fidelity, what's the what's the leg up that this version is going to have over all those other versions that exist? Well, I have an original copy of that, which was mastered by my old uh, mentor and alma mater artisan sound recorders, Bob McLeod. And so um, I kind of use that as my benchmark for that. Um, I, 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 I find it very hard to better, to be perfectly honest. I mean, right. that's, that's pretty much the way uh, I think that record should sound. Well, I um, remember asking you, you know, again, the first time we talked about if you have all things being equal, if you have like an original pressing or running the same tape tape through your uh, equipment, you know, which is better. And you're like, you know what, the new one's going to sound better just because the technology and the way your setup is better. So if you have a pristine master tape that hasn't degraded, uh, yep. which I know is a question mark for a lot of recordings too, yep. this one should sound better, right? Yeah, it probably will. It'll have a slight, you know, improvement, but, um, but the original is damn hard to beat. Uh, another comment that I wanted to make about that is uh, one of my favorite engineers was the engineer on that record, Steve Barncard, who worked at Wally Hyder in San Francisco. And uh, he worked on everything from Creedence Clearwater to uh, uh, David Crosby's. Um, uh, I think it was, if I could only remember my name, wasn't that the new one? Right, right. Um, and I think he did the Crosby and Nash album, too. Good engineer. Really, really top-notch engineer. And nothing I have ever cut for him requires a lot of massaging. It always sounds really good. Now, do you have Working Man's Dead coming up also? Because a lot of times... When I don't know. That's beauty... my second favorite album. <laughs> um, that was done by a different team at, at a different studio, but it's also... and that was, But it was mastered at Artisan Sound also uh, by Bob McLeod. You've done these uh, Tone Poet uh, classic vinyl series for Blue Note. You have the High Fidelity for Rhino. Right. You have these jackpot ones you've done. And I just got an email today um, for uh, ordering the bundle of Bill Evans and Jim Hall's Undercurrent and Mel Brown's Chicken Fat. Cool. It, you know, aside from the tone poets where, you know, you guys are working together, is there any difference in how you approach any of these? Like, do you have different resources when you're doing Rhino versus Blue Note versus jackpot versus whatever else, you know, jazz dispensary? Um, the situation of working with Joe Harley on the Tone Poets, um, you know, he always brings in an OG copy of it, and almost always. And um, so, you know, and I have his input to the stuff, whereas for the classic series, even, I don't have, you know, it's it's just me. Um, and that would be the same with um, 
with Rhino. Well, okay, well, Doobie Brothers, that's been... Captain and Me. Yeah, okay. Well, I had an original, you know, Captain and Me of that. Um, so I had that for reference. And, um, oh, yeah, 90210, I had that. Uh, yes. I've done several Yes titles. Uh, but I'm not... You know, some of them might not be for Hi-Fi. They might be for their regular releases. So, but anyway, so they're working on, like, a, the Jackpot, uh, Undercurrent, Chicken Fat, Mel Brown. Right. Bill Evans, anything different about doing those? Not really. Except for like Not whether really. you have the source material of them, I guess, or the original. Right. Yeah. The the other series that I don't think we've mentioned here is is the OJC stuff for uh, for Concord, which is Craft. Right. Um, yeah. That that's been a huge series so far too, um, and I'm way out on that too. I've probably done fifty titles for that series, and I don't know how many they've gotten out already, but. Undercurrent has had a lot of issues also, and uh, there's an impulse box that uh, that Vinyl Me Please is putting out that's kind of been delayed, and and you know it has one of the one one of the challenges of that box is that there's there are albums that have come out in other versions uh, recently, like Pharaoh Sanders's Karma, and mm -hmm. Chicken Fat is another one um, that's it's a title in that box that has not been released, and now here okay. we have a AAA mastered and cut Kevin Gray version about to come out. Um, so makes it you know kind of easy to get that version instead. Um, right. And I've and are you and you're getting like the original master tape when you're doing these? Well, virtually every one of these, yeah. I mean. Ever so often, there's a tape copy because the the master disappeared or the master tape has kind of worn out or has problems with it. So, but but those are few and far between. And then you you have your Anthony Wilson Hackensack West record coming out, and you've you've gotten a test pressing on that. Yeah, yeah, some exciting news. Yeah, well, I mastered it just before it was the last thing I did before I closed down before the holidays, and um, the. Doran, the plating guy up there said, hey, if you can get it to me, you know, next day, first overnight, I might be able to get a test pressing before Christmas, but it didn't happen. But Joe and I both got our test pressings uh, last Friday and we're we're thrilled. It, it came out great. We're totally happy with it. And um, I spent more time mastering that record than I've ever spent on a record in my life. I spent four solid days on it because I was just sort of obsessing over detail stuff, you know. But it was, it shouldn't have been, and it really wasn't a hard record to master. I just kind of obsessed over it. So well, anyway, especially since presumably it was well recorded, since you did that too. Thank you. Yes. Well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally happy with the recording. Um, and there was no EQ, no compression done to it. But I, uh, the level changes from song to song. Um, it was recorded over two days, and I was kind of aggressive the first day and I kind of backed off the second. So I had to kind of adjust levels to kind of keep the energy level the same. And uh, so that that was the the thing on that album. Um, and we're in the process of uh, finishing up the artwork right now and hopefully going to get it to uh, to Stoughton within a week to get the jackets going. And then it's in everybody else's hands <laughs> at that point. So So what's your ETA on the album coming out? Probably early February. They're record companies that will have, like, you know, when they have their store online, they'll have sort of like the rarities pull down menu. And you'll go on there and it'll be a bunch of test pressings. And there will be like uh -huh. test pressings from their albums. And it'll be like 100 bucks or 40 bucks or whatever they're charging for the test pressing. When you're buying like a test pressing from a company like that, 
is it going to sound as good as what actually came out? Because it might be a test pressing where they got it and they're like, yeah, you know what? There's no bass on this one, right? It's a I mean, total mixed bag. You know, I mean, you are not necessarily when you're buying something on eBay, you're not necessarily getting an approved test pressing. And that's what so many people don't realize. All they're thinking is, you know, assuming that it was in a two, uh, an, uh, an approved test pressing, it's a real early you know, off the stamper pressing, you know, so it, technically it could be a little bit better, but I don't think that's always the case. And the other problem is test pressings usually tend to be slightly noisier than the final release because they have to set up the presses and then, you know, run like five or 10 and throw them away because it takes that long to get the press heated up. And then they start pressing the test pressings. And generally speaking, the press isn't running quite as optimally as it would be after you've pressed maybe 100 records. You know? Interesting. It's more expensive because it's rarer, but is it actually going to sound better? And and I guess the, the, the question, it's it's just a question mark, right? Right. Well, without mentioning any names, I know for a fact that one reissue person got busted for that uh, because there's a problem with that. Technically, those test presses belong to the record label, not to the reissue label. They own it. It's, you know. That's interesting. You know, I can do this on my label because it's my label, you know, but technically... You know, nobody's getting paid any royalties if you sell test pressings, you know? Are you going to sell your test pressings? No. Well, actually, you know what we're doing on Kirsten's record? Um, Steve Westman asked me if we could do this, and uh, I said, sure. He said, do you have any test pressings left over and uh, sealed? And I said, yeah, I have two. And so he said, um, ask Kirsten, and I think she's agreed, that we're, he's going to auction them off on the site and uh, give the money to charity. To oh, something nice. That to something for um, youth in music as the charity. That's great. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be great. And he's talking to some other people too to get some more test pressings. You know, so. Right. Well, that would be cool. Good talking, and I'll uh, talk to you again soon. All right. Always good talking to you too, Mark. That's it for episode 117 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Kevin Gray for joining us again to share his insights into mastering, engineering, and making recordings sound better than you could imagine. Keep an ear out for Anthony Wilson's Hackensack West, the second release on Coherent Records, coming soon. Also, Kristen Edkins' Shapes and Sound is still available online at Acoustic Sounds and Elusive Disc. Look for Grey Mastered Albums in Blue Note's Tone Poet and Classic Vinyl series, Rhino's High Fidelity series, Kraft's Jazz Dispensary label and Original Jazz Classic series, plus releases from Jackpot Records and others. To learn more about Grey and his coherent audio company, go to coherent, that's C-O-H-E-A-R-E-N-T dot com. Carapop is produced by Chris Swake, a master of his audio domain. We encourage you to support Carapop so we can keep this podcast free and sustainable. Please give whatever you'd like on carapop.com. We appreciate you all. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow Carapop on Twitter, X, and Instagram at Carapopcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M A R K C A R O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks.